I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello, and welcome to the Doc Exchange, a real stories podcast in partnership with the Grierson Trust. This is a brand new podcast that asks nonfiction filmmakers about the documentaries that have had a lasting impact on their lives and careers. I'm your host, June Jennings. I'm a writer and journalist based in New York and currently serve as the Engagement and Partnerships Manager for Field of Vision, an award-winning filmmaker-driven documentary unit. Every week, I'll ask a new filmmaker or filmmaking team about three documentaries connected by a single theme, that have made a meaningful impression on their work and life. This week, I'm joined by Simon Chin, a double Oscar-winning documentary producer and trustee of the Gerson Trust, who's responsible for some of the most successful feature documentaries of recent years. In 2005, he conceived and produced his first theatrical feature documentary, Man on Wire, and went on to win over 40 international awards, including the BAFTA for Outstanding British Film and the Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature. He followed that up with a string of multi-award-winning feature documentaries, including Project Nim, The Imposter, and Searching for Sugar Man, which also won a BAFTA and an Academy Award and made over $20 million at the international box office. Simon launched his company Lightbox in 2014 with his LA-based cousin, Jonathan Chin. Their projects include Whitney, the only authorized documentary ever made about the international pop icon Whitney Houston, the Emmy Award-winning LA 92 about the 1992 Los Angeles riots, and Louis Thoreau's first theatrical doc, My Scientology Movie, one of the highest grossing feature docs of all time in the UK. Two of Simon's most recent documentaries were nominated at this year's Grierson Awards, Untouchable, which tells the story of Harvey Weinstein's rise and fall in the context of New Revelations, which came to light in November 2017, and Tell Me Who I Am, a heartbreaking and ultimately hopeful voyage about a traumatic past shared by two brothers that explores the blurred boundaries of memory and reality. In this interview, we discuss three music documentaries that have stayed with Simon throughout his career. Let's check it out. Simon, thank you so much for joining me on the Doc Exchange today. It's really great to have you here. Thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. And so before we get into your documentary picks for this week, I wanted to ask if you could describe your path into documentary filmmaking. How did you become a producer? I guess I left college not quite knowing what I wanted to do. I had a kind of inkling that I wanted to be a journalist and actually really wanted to be a foreign correspondent because I I've been incredibly impressed by a then girlfriend's father, who was this rather legendary war correspondent, a guy called David Blundy, who I knew a bit. And then he very tragically got killed in El Salvador in 1989. And I sort of started to have second thoughts after that. I mean, uh, 
more just looking at the kind of life he led, which was this kind of very sort of shambolic existence, living out of suitcases, living abroad, not being able to sort of have a great deal of stability. And I guess I sort of figured that that probably wasn't for me because ultimately I wouldn't mind having a family and settling down. But I was definitely, I kind of had the sort of adventure bug and I kind of thought maybe documentaries would be able to sort of fulfill that in a way that I could also have a sort of settled existence at the same time, that I could kind of go on sort of short journeys or short adventures and then come home for a long period. So that's sort of what I embarked on doing. And I guess I sort of went through the sort of fairly traditional route of getting into British television, a researcher, assistant producer, producer, sort of working through the ranks really with great directors and producers who I learned a lot from. And I think I just sort of served a very long apprenticeship, you know, which was valuable, but I, you know, was also impatient as well. I was a kind of impatient ultimately to sort of try and do my own thing and increasingly became so impatient that I decided to set about trying to produce my own feature doc in 2003 and got extremely lucky. In hindsight, I was very lucky to find an incredible story. I actually found the story that became Man on Wire which was the first feature doc project that I ever embarked on. In fact, the first of my own projects. And, you know, the success of that film enabled me to do more. So, yeah, that, in a nutshell, was my path. And so your company, Lightbox, has been involved in such a range of projects. Can you talk about what captures your attention and makes you want to produce one documentary versus another, especially when they can take years and years to make and come to fruition? The simple answer is just to say instinct. It's just like something you just look at and respond to at some sort of deep level. And that can be for personal reasons or it can be for other reasons, like, you know, you can sell it. I mean, there are usually a kind of a number of filters, not in any kind of systematic way, but filters that you sort of just naturally get used to sort of putting a project through. I mean, there there is the sort of basic, you know, is this a great story? Is it something I'd want to watch? But then there is also inevitably, certainly as a producer, the kind of, is it going to find an audience? And what is its kind of commercial potential? Lightbox, I, I guess, as a company, we're sort of interested in doing not cranking out feature docs. I mean, we want to do a handful of feature docs every year, a small handful. All of those, I think, need to feel that they're big and ambitious. You know, we want them to be in the sort of top tier of feature docs, the ones that get into the conversation, the ones that people go and see. So, yeah, there is usually a sort of commercial filter that you have to apply even to the sort of great stories. But sometimes, you know, it's just a small story that just like feels amazing and a director attached that you're excited about and you just want to work on it. There are those anomalies. And in a weird way, I would put Searching for Sugarman somewhat into that category. It was a project that actually sort of came to me from an unknown director who'd never made a feature doc, never made a film longer than about six minutes at that time. And in some sense, commercially, it felt a little unpromising. It was about a musical artist that no one had ever heard of, allegedly died before he was then discovered but you know how are we going to market this film was a sort of question that we had and you know it has to be said that music docs at that time and I guess I'm going back to about 2010-11 
did not have a particularly impressive track record of commercial success at the box office. And so there was that, you know, I, honestly, I took it around a few sales agents and some other potential buyers. And, you know, that there was not a sort of resounding, yes, we must do it. As is so often the case with films that then go on to be successful, everyone kind of assumes that success was absolutely foreseeable. Well, it absolutely wasn't. And I just loved the film. I loved the idea of it. So, you know, there are always anomalies and it is not a science picking films and picking stories. In the end, I guess you just sort of have to go with your gut. So thinking about music documentaries specifically, which is sort of an expansive and diverse category, could you unpack what this particular category, subgenre, means to you? I mean, when you sit down to watch a music documentary, what do you expect to see? I mean, for me personally, I would say that I am not dyed in the wool muso geek. You know, I love music, but I'm not probably someone who, who is going to sort of gravitate towards films that kind of get into the weeds of a musician's craft. That's an important function of a music doc often, but it isn't, for me, the thing. I guess the thing for me is sort of trying to find if I'm going to produce a music doc, I want to find a story that transcends the art and the artist that sort of goes beyond the music, should we say. And I think Sugar Man is a great case in point of that. I mean, it's absolutely intrinsically about him as a musician and him as an artist, but it's so much more than that as a story. And actually, in a weird way, the kind of approach that Malik took to it was to sort of try and sort of draw much more from the true crime genre, it sort of unfolds as a sort of detective story much more than it does a traditional music doc. And I think that was one of the keys to its success. So let's go to your first pick, which is Anvil, a kind of rockumentary about the beloved but obscure Canadian metal band. When did you first see this film and what impression did it leave on you? Yeah, I remember it very vividly, actually. And I remember because it was the same year as Man on Wire and we were at the London Film Festival with Man on Wire. And I went to see Anvil, not knowing a lot about it, but actually knowing that the filmmaker was someone I'd gone to school with, a guy called Sasha Javazi. So I was kind of intrigued because I'd heard that Sasha had kind of gone on to have a pretty successful career as a sort of Hollywood screenwriter. He'd written some big movies. And I was kind of wondering what he was doing making a doc about Anvil. But I remember, of course, that he was like the only heavy metaler at my school. He was sort of famous for that. And he had come some sort of vague memory that he'd sort of, you know, as a sort of 15-year-old, gone to the Marquee Club in London to go and see his favourite bands and had kind of hooked up with Anvil at the time. You know, they were kind of big band in the 80s. And had sort of subsequently gone on tour with them as a roadie, which was just a sort of great story. So I was like, oh, he must have ended up making a film about them as a result of that. And... So I didn't quite know what to expect. And I went and I just totally just fell in love with the film because it's sort of like, as I was saying earlier, it was just a film made by a fan about this band who, you know, had a bit like Sugar Man, who sort of fallen on hard times, who'd had a moment in the 80s, had disappeared from view. They were supposed to have this kind of huge career, but just didn't. And it's a bit of a sort of where are they now story. And these two characters, Rob and Lips, who are Anvil, sort of living in suburban Canada, sort of working on construction sites as delivery men, 
but still trying to keep the dream alive of the band, you know. And in the course of the film, they sort of go on the journey of trying to sort of reignite the band and give it a new lease of life and sort of succeed. Very sort of Sugarman quality before I obviously knew about that story, but it also had this kind of great humour to it. And they're incredible documentary characters, Rob and Lips, and sort of inadvertently hilarious. So it had that sort of thing, it was like, maybe this is another kind of benchmark for what makes a good music doc. Maybe the benchmark should be influenced by or was an influence of Spinal Tap. And this was a film that was absolutely clearly influenced by Spinal Tap. Uh, it kind of felt like the documentary version of that film. But it, was, it also had this other quality to it, which is far from sort of taking the piss out of Robin Lips and Anvil. The film was absolutely a kind of love letter to the band. And, you know, they were just incredibly, as well as being hilarious, sympathetic, and their bond, this kind of unique bond that they formed, which was somewhat volatile, you know, they were arguing throughout the film, but was nonetheless somehow unbreakable. So it sort of becomes this brilliant story about hope and brotherhood through music. And seeing the depth of these characters and all the different aspects that you're saying about the film, all the different layers, did seeing Anvil impact your perception of what a music documentary could be? I mean, I read a quote somewhere that said the film was as much about heavy metal as, say, like The Big Lebowski is about bowling. So I just want to get your perception of how seeing Anvil maybe evolves your understanding of what a music doc could be. Well, of course, I'm sure Sasha would say the film is very metal. I mean, mm. it's made by a, a metaler, not without some irony. I've always got the feeling that Sasha himself wore his stripy, skin-tight pants with a heavy dollop of, of irony. So the metal in that, it's, it's sort of worn lightly. But yeah, look, I'm not a heavy metal fan, far from it. It's about a sort of subculture, right? It's about a world, you know. Yeah, listen, it totally transcends being about the music. And I'm frankly, I wouldn't have been remotely interested in seeing it for the music itself. But it's definitely the world that these guys live in and inhabit, which is kind of a hilarious world. I mean, you know, and the sort of lyrics that they write, I think they, they have a kind of refreshing sense of that themselves. It's not a film that takes itself seriously. So let's move on to your second pick, which is Don't Look Back, the influential 1967 documentary about Bob Dylan. Can you tell me why this film captured your attention and how you would describe the influence it's had on you and your work? Yeah, well, I mean, I suppose this film is in a category of a heavy influence of Spinal Tap. It's a film by the great D.A. Pennebaker, the great late D.A. Pennebaker, who followed Bob Dylan at a seminal moment in his early career, I think it was in 1965, where he goes to the UK with Dylan for a sort of key tour around the country and quite a sort of groundbreaking tour. You know, I think it was at a point where Dylan has sort of just become massive. So you kind of definitely get that sense of, of this is a guy who's is riding some huge wave of popularity, but is still completely groundbreaking for audiences that you know his music is sort of and, and his style of performance is sort of like nothing anyone has ever seen before so it definitely has that feeling watching it now from a period of hindsight you're kind of watching this incredible cultural 
historic cultural moment sort of unfold before your eyes. And, you know, I guess the thing about Pennebaker, who I can't say Pennebaker is a huge influence on my career. I mean, I don't tend to make those kinds of observational films, but I often say that they're the hardest kinds of films to make. They require undying commitment. I mean, you have to live with your subject essentially for weeks and months and sometimes years. And Pennebaker had that commitment. I mean, you know, my God, did he have that commitment. And he's there, he's behind the camera, he's shooting. I think he even built the camera to make the film. And I think actually the, the camera that he used to make the film was sort of so new. I think having a mobile camera in 1965 was something that was completely new and groundbreaking. So this was like, the first film of its kind, really. I mean, I think observational filmmaking of that kind was brand new. And then to sort of get access to a musical star as their stardom was sort of in the ascendant and kind of unfolding in front of you, that was new. And I think the other thing about it, you know, when you kind of compare it to other similar kind of access films about huge music stars that are made now is that, it's got this incredible unmediated quality to it. I mean, essentially, you can watch that films about Taylor Swift now or whoever, right? And you know, you can feel the hand of the PR in those films. You can just feel the cogs of the star's brain turning and thinking about how they're coming across. There is nothing innocent, actually, anymore about those kinds of films. There is something by contrast, incredibly raw and innocent and unmediate. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. About that film, in every respect, the way it was shot, the quality of the access, but actually, most of all, Dylan's own sense of the cameras. But... Dylan himself is a complicated dude, and he definitely comes across in that film as complicated and a bit brooding and ultimately 
not always easy to like. I mean, he clearly, over the course of the tour, is getting increasingly irritated by the press and these sort of rather kind of curious, suited, quite unsophisticated British newsmen. And they're all men, actually with one exception, sent his way to sort of try and do some reporting. And, and they always ask him the most inane questions and seem completely disinterested, really, in who he is or what he's about. And of course, at a certain point, Dylan gets pissed off with this and starts sort of belittling them or just getting irritated. And so I actually was trying to remind myself of how it was reviewed. And I pulled out a, a review of, from Roger Ebert at the time, from 1967, when the film came out. And the review is all about what an unlikable guy Dylan is and why anyone would want to make a film about him and how awful he was and, and how not very bright he was. And actually, I think Ebert completely missed the point, actually, because looking back from a period of over 50 years, I guess, hindsight, you see it very, very differently, knowing everything that you now know about Dylan, what happened to him, and you know, the fact that he's now won a Nobel Prize and is regarded as the greatest musical artist of his generation, maybe any generation, in terms of popular music. So thinking about making a documentary about such a legendary musician, be it Bob Dylan or Whitney Houston, it's maybe a more of a general question, but do you sort of have to resign yourself to the fact that there will always be conflicting opinions or takes on these beloved figures that not everyone will be happy or see them in the same way? And how do you approach making a film about someone that almost everyone may have an opinion on? Yeah, I mean, it's a difficult one. I mean, I, I think we always sort of tend to find at the end of our music docs when we show them to various people that there are always those who complain bitterly, particularly about songs that you didn't include, whether it's the record label or whoever, you know. And I suppose you are kind of conscious in the process of making a film about someone so beloved, if not actually sacred, that you are having to sort of balance interests between, I guess, the fan base and I guess who will be the film's sort of built-in audience, but also those that you hope to come to the film just because it's a great film and a great story and because the artist is culturally significant. So we were dealing with a lot of those sensitivities around her legacy and sensitivities within her family. I mean, we actually had our sort of way into that project was through Whitney's family and the estate. And the very first conversation we had with them was about whether they would allow us to make a film that was honest, that went to places that they may not find comfortable, and whether they were willing to cede editorial control to us, all of which we would have said we would need to proceed. And they said that kind of unhesitatingly, in that case, Pat Houston, Whitney's sister-in-law, who kind of oversees the estate on behalf of the family, was completely up for a really honest portrayal of Whitney, notwithstanding the fact that she felt it was important, as did we, that ultimately it would be a compassionate portrait. We had no interest in doing something that wasn't compassionate. But it went to some very, very difficult places. And certainly there are members of her family who did not like that film. I definitely think the film, as you say, is like is quite compassionate. And there is so much in that film that I think really makes you take a step back and look at the longer, not just the legacy of 
Whitney as a musician, but also as a person and all the things she endured and then all the different trials and triumphs that she went through. There's always a sort of tussle in these films about the music and how much of the music and the performance and the performer you include versus the other stuff. And I think Whitney is a great case in point where we weren't anxious to make a film that was just about the sort of behind the scenes nastiness. Obviously that story needed to be told, but we also really, really did want to reflect what an incredible performer she was and why the world fell in love with her in the way that they did. And sort of try and reimagine her as a performer, to try and recontextualize her, to see her in the context of her times, to see her in the context of, you know, particularly with the story of how she sang the Star Spangled Banner, which is regarded as one of her seminal performances at the Super Bowl, and reclaimed that song for a black audience. There were things about Whitney as a performer that we felt had sort of been forgotten. And I guess we want to bring them back into focus. But inevitably, there will be those people who say that our focus was much more on the salacious stuff and less on the music. So there is actually no satisfying anyone when you make a doc about a huge star like Whitney Houston or Tina Turner. It's definitely hard to please everyone, but that film is so compelling and very much does speak to all the different musical touchstones and also life moments that brought Whitney to the end of her life. And so now for your final pick, I'd love for you to talk about When We Were Kings. Incidentally, our first guest, Asif Kapadia, also selected this film as one of his picks. But for that discussion, we didn't go as deep into the music of the film. So I'd love to know what about the live performances in that documentary make it such a special film for you? Well, I suppose the first obvious thing to say is it isn't really a music doc at all, but is a doc in which the music is somehow intrinsic for me, at least, and sort of elevates the story beyond being just a sort of sports story. And that is, again, what is so extraordinary about this film. It is a film, hopefully like all the ones I've picked, that so much sort of transcends its sort of narrow category. Uh, Calling it a sports doc seems like really a bit of an injustice for this film. But this is a film that probably, for me personally, one of the two films that made me want to make feature docs. I was just very aware of it, you know, sort of like, I guess, deep into my career as a sort of TV documentary producer, probably getting a bit fed up with television at the time and the slightly kind of formulaic way in which it was sort of evolving. And I was sort of suddenly looking elsewhere and seeing that there was documentary was playing to cinema audiences in a completely different way. And there were a few films around at the time, which for me was like, wow, I could maybe do something like that. Not saying that this is necessarily one because, you know, in a weird way, this, this was a sort of film that sort of relied on footage from 1974, the, the filmmaker, I think Leon Gast had shot following Ali and, and Don King to the Congo, then Zaire, for this epic fight that had taken months and months to sort of organize and had had all sorts of problems. And also, you know, it was, it was the fight that Ali was supposed to lose. It was kind of his comeback fight. He was not as young a man as he had been in his absolute prime. And his opponent was George Foreman, who just everyone just assumed was going to destroy him. And it was just going to be the most hideous of non-comebacks 
And it was it just became, as we all now know, the absolute opposite. It became the most incredible sporting comeback of all time. But within that, there's this other kind of flavor, this other dimension to the story, which is about Africa, you know, and it's about Don King and it's about civil rights and it's about Muhammad Ali, who's obviously deeply engaged in civil rights in the broader sense, and he was a member of the Nation of Islam. So there was this just kind of flavor of going back to Africa and this sort of the kind of rise of sort of African consciousness among African-Americans, of which the music was a, a massive part. And so Don King decided to stage this huge concert, the vision of which was to sort of fuse black American music with the greatest black American musicians at the time with the greatest African musicians. And, you know, the film doesn't go into that in great detail. There was actually a film that came out much later called Soul Power, which was exactly about the concert. Leon Gast uses the, the concert and the music so brilliantly in the film, sort of punctuate the sporting story. And in particular, there's this whole, you know, you see the great Miriam McCabe, who's sort of the greatest South African musician of the time, performing in the concert. And then George Plimpton, who was a, one of the journalists who was reporting on the event, who's telling the story retrospectively in an interview, sort of talks about this visit to an African witch doctor, but they get some sort of premonition that there's going to be some moment where the witch doctor kind of turns up in the ring or something. I think George Plimpton refers to this, the succubus, the succubus, this sort of African mystical element to the fight. And every time he mentions it, and when the fight turns around extraordinarily in the ring, Plimpton refers to the succubus appearing or something. And, and you see Mir you know, Miriam McCabe and her extraordinary performance. You hear it again. And it's the whole experience of it is completely magical and intoxicating. And for me, that's what really makes the film as special as it is. I'd like to ask a question about perspective. This is a film about Black pride, celebrates Black culture, and was, as you mentioned, filmed in what was then Zaire in Africa. And yet it was directed by Leon Gast, who's a white filmmaker. And it's an incredible film. I mean, obviously it captures so much of the grandeur and the magic that you're saying of this historic event. All that to say, I was hoping you could talk about how you've personally approached producing films about Black cultural icons, be it Whitney Houston and now Tina Turner, or films about issues of race and racism, as we saw in LA 92. I was hoping to get your perspective. It's a really interesting and Difficult question. For whatever reason, I and we as a company, Lightbox, have been drawn to stories in this area, stories in the area of race. I my, myself am Jewish. So I guess, you know, at some level, albeit that, you know, it's very different, the Jewish experience is a very different experience. It is nonetheless a minority experience. And I guess maybe that is part of, I haven't ever given this very clear thought, but it's part of my and my business partner, Jonathan's identification with stories about minority ethnic groups or the minority experience, certainly the immigrant experience. There is a really, really interesting, and I think highly charged issue around diversity quite appropriately that we as a company are very much in the weeds of trying to sort of grapple with and, and, and address the question of who can tell stories is perhaps one of the most 
difficult ones to grapple with, you know, who is entitled to tell stories. I mean, I guess speaking from my own experience, I am bound to say, and I believe that it is possible, and I think sometimes desirable to tell stories from the perspective of being an outsider. That is a legitimate perspective. And with Whitney, I would say that the choice of Kevin McDonald had a lot to do with that in a funny way. I think we kind of felt, Kevin, when I first approached him, he was sort of wondering why. He wasn't particularly interested in Whitney Houston's music. He isn't American. He's Scottish, in fact, and he's not black. It is a film that is told from an outsider's perspective. It is not a film that is unlike, I guess, Anvil, which is the kind of ultimate sort of insider's story. That is a story that you kind of feel watching it is being told from someone on the inside. It kind of has, I wouldn't want to say it has a kind of bias, but it has a, a love of its subjects that comes through. And I would say that with Whitney, yeah, there is a sort of journalistic quality to the, the storytelling. You know, that Kevin had a question about Whitney that he wanted to answer, which is sort of what happened to her and why. So I just think it's it depends. I think these issues have become incredibly sensitive in, in recent times, and rightly so, but I don't think it's straightforward. And finally, just coming back to When We Were Kings and the majesty of that film, why do you think it endures? And do you think about legacy in the context of your own films as you're making them, or is it more about just getting the story right in the moment, right for this project? I mean, do you think about legacy not in any sort of particularly calculated way? I mean, I think you just always just try to do the best with the particular story and what you, the materials you're given to work with and the resources and all of that. But yeah, I suppose with a subject like, you know, Whitney Houston or Tina Turner, there is this definitely this feeling while you're making it that this is unique, that somehow or other this access isn't going to happen again. It hasn't happened before and it's not going to happen again. With those two films, certainly I don't think anyone will get the kind of access to the family that we got ever again. I don't think they'll do that again. And for a fact with Tina that this is the first and I know it's the last project that she will fully participate in in this way. So, yeah, there's more a sort of responsibility that comes with that because you know that you are, I guess, part of the reason for them wanting to do it is legacy. But then again, you don't want to be crushed by that idea because that responsibility can sometimes feel a bit crushing. And actually, in the end, it isn't necessarily always about satisfying your subjects. I mean, obviously, you want to tell a story that they will be happy with ultimately, but that can't be your driving consideration. There will have to be things inevitably in, in a film about anyone that they're not comfortable with. And I would say that's the case with all these films. But I think you have to, you have to pursue those truths vigorously. Otherwise, what are you, what are you doing? You're kind of doing, doing something other than documentary, I think. Simon, thank you so much for joining us today on the Doc Exchange. It's been really a pleasure. And thank you for all of your honesty and all of your candor with these films. Really appreciate it. Take care. That's all for this week's show. The Doc Exchange, a real stories podcast, is a Little Dot Studios production in partnership with the Grierson Trust. I'm your host, June Jennings. The Doc Exchange is produced by Nicole Davis and Annie Hughes. Our executive producer is Paul Wolf. Our music is by Dusty Dex and Source Through Epidemic Sound. 
were edited by Content is Queen. And our artwork is by Nash Kasich. If you enjoyed the show, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. If you want to watch even more great documentaries, join us at Real Stories on YouTube, Amazon, Facebook, and other platforms. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.